This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who's inspired me with their wisdom. This week, my guest is Ellen Yin, the co-owner of High Street Hospitality Group in Philadelphia and New York. She's a visionary with a talent for reinvention and a heart for hospitality. Welcome, Ellen. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks, Dana. Great to connect with you. So, In reading through the history of your restaurants, Fork, High Street on Market, and all the rest of the group, I came to realize something I didn't know before, which is that you were ahead of the curve always. I'd love to just toss back to 1997 when you opened Fork on a rather desolate stretch and what you were thinking when you opened this American bistro in Philadelphia. Right. Well, 97 was the beginning, but my history in hospitality goes way back to when I was in high school. And like many people in the hospitality industry, I started out as a bus girl in a local restaurant. It happened to be a French restaurant that was pretty well acclaimed. Jacques Pepin and Julia Child had cooked there before, and I worked there in the late 70s and early 80s as a bus girl, and they trained me as everything. But I just fell in love with the hospitality industry. And so when I moved to Philadelphia... Wait, but Ellen, if you're going to go all the way back to the French training, I'm actually really curious about the Mongolian barbecue, where you were working when you were 14... What made you, at that age, decide that you wanted to work in a restaurant? So I really wanted a job, and I didn't know what kind of job I could get at that age, but I had to get out of my my home because I was a really independent person, and like many immigrant parents, my parents were really, really strict about school. And I was a good student, but I just had to have some freedom. (laughs) And so getting a job was really important to me. And I somehow found this restaurant in my hometown that had a chain in the town next door that was called the Chinese Kitchen. And this branch of the Chinese Kitchen served Mongolian barbecue. And I had never heard of Mongolian barbecue, never had it before. It was really cool. It had this very large dome barbecue. I do remember it well because I sliced my finger on the slicer, which I still look at all the time. But it was a great experience, but I wanted to have more. And it was also a place I had to drive to. And the next restaurant I worked at was right around the corner from my home so I could walk there. And that was a little bit more convenient than having my mom pick me up and drop me off. Oh my God, I love the idea of your mother picking you up and dropping you off. So was the house a bit claustrophobic? Because I feel like part of what I noticed through your career is this independent streak. And like, if there is a pack, you're always out ahead of it. I feel like that must be what led you to that first job. 
but it must be something at home. <laughs> it was. My mother was an incredible cook and entertainer, and we frequently had people at the house that were my father's colleagues or my grandmother, and my mother just was that person who took so much time and effort to make these incredible meals for people. And she really taught me how to be hospitable and how to just welcome people into the house and want to serve them well. And that was really how my interest in hospitality started out. I always loved being the person there to bring the food out when I was a kid, setting the table, helping with the dishes. It was just something that was born in my you know, upbringing and part of who I am now because of my incredibly talented mother. Okay, so fast forward, you worked at a, a French restaurant in your hometown. I loved it. I loved all the people. I loved every aspect of the restaurant from the food, which, you know, I grew up in an Asian household where we didn't have cheese or dairy. And so just this eye-opening experience. I remember fettuccine Alfredo and quiche and like these foods that like never appeared in our home. And uh, I didn't like cheese, but somehow I worked for a restaurant called The Fromagerie and they converted me into a cheese lover. I, I love thinking about that. And then also how you inaugurated a cheese program later on in your career. So these things built upon each other. And also that for other people, the food that was cooked to your house would have been very exotic. But for you, cheese was pretty exotic. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I left my hometown of Rumson, New Jersey, and I moved to Philadelphia to go to college. And I just kept loving hospitality. I would cook out of my dorm room. And I worked for this little French cafe on campus called the Conversation Cafe, where I made cappuccinos and espressos. I was a barista before barista even became a thing. And I baked cakes for this French chef that he could sell in his cafe out of my dorm room in a toaster oven. What can one cook in a dorm toaster that then like, you could put a price on and sell in a cafe? Oh, my God. I would bake cakes, layer cakes. I would make nut and fruit breads and things like that. I mean, nothing, nothing really exotic. And remember, I'm not a chef. So these are, these were pretty basic recipes. And I, you know, I always missed working at this restaurant. So I would constantly be going home, thought I wanted to go to Cornell Hotel School. When I realized how cold it was in Ithaca, I, I decided to stay in the mid-Atlantic region and took a semester off from school. And when I returned, I found this amazing restaurant right on Penn campus called La Terrasse. And it was kind of a, a very influential restaurant in Philadelphia. It was the beginning of kind of this fusion cuisine and many restaurateurs and restaurants came out of La Terrasse. So you, you did a bit of a a detour and you did some consulting and working in a few places, but you ended up being drawn back to get an MBA and eventually open a restaurant. What was the Philadelphia scene like in 1997? Well, in 97, I think the city was just starting to bounce back from the late 80s and kind of recession. It was a difficult period in the late 80s when I first graduated from college, and I ended up working in nonprofit as an event planner. But when I decided to go back to get my degree, Philadelphia was just starting to like reopen, and a restaurant renaissance started happening. And people like uh, Neil Stein and 
Susanna Fu and George Perrier had kind of opened the doors for upscale dining. And Philadelphia has an incredible BYOB scene, which I think is one of the reasons why Philadelphia's food scene is so exciting, because Philadelphia is a state where you have to buy liquor through the Liquor Control Board. And because of that, creative entrepreneurs started restaurants without serving liquor. And that enabled you to start on a smaller budget. But when we opened, I felt that we absolutely needed to have a liquor license. My classmate and longtime partner, Roberto Sella, wanted to have a place where he could drink his own wine and and be part of the wine program. And so that incentivized us to want to find a liquor license. And at the time, a liquor license in Philadelphia now costs about 200000 but I was able to find a liquor license for about 20000 But we wanted to just open a neighborhood bistro, and we felt that that was something that Philadelphia didn't have. There was nothing kind of between high-end special occasion dining and BYOBs, and we really felt that there was a niche for that type of dining. It's something accessible and approachable, but also featured local farmers and local producers. When people hear now that you were working with local farmers and you wanted a bistro, it sounds like, well, of course, but just a reminder that in 97, it definitely wasn't, of course. And I'm wondering, because when you decided to open essentially an all-day restaurant and when you decided to have an American-focused wine list and when you opened in the stretch of Philadelphia, you opened in each of these was sort of radical and innovative at the time. What is it about the way that you think or the way you absorb information that puts you in the position to be ahead of the curve? I think it was taking chances that might be outside of the box. I I felt that at the time there was nothing in the neighborhood serving people who wanted to eat at home. And I really felt that prepared foods was going to take off. And maybe I was ahead of the curve maybe too far ahead of the curve. Right. So you've had an incredible ability to attract extraordinary talent. Eli Culp is an extraordinary talent. Alex Bois, who was your baker for a time, an extraordinary talent. Omar Tate, who is an exceptional part of the Philadelphia scene now, had worked for you. And I think that the, the list goes on. What do you think makes you a great talent spotter, and then a great talent retainer? Well, I'm always looking outside the box to build our team. So I'm never looking for what's right in front of me. I'm always trying to look deeper, whether that's somebody who's young and up and coming, like, you know, when Anne-Marie became my partner, she had never been a chef before. She had been the executive sous chef of the White Dog Cafe, but she was somebody we brought on because we felt that she was an incredible human being. She had it amazing integrity. And when we had her food, we were like, so pleasantly surprised. I mean, I know that sounds terrible, but we had never had her food. I mean, like tasting people's food before they were hired wasn't really a thing in, you know, the mid nineties. So when we had her food, we were like, this is amazing. It's so fresh. It's so off the pan to the plate. And that was what we really wanted to achieve with the beginning of Fork. There's a certain risk involved with going out of the box. Do you ever have any fear about going outside the box? Well, first of all, I mean, remember the 90s was a completely different time. And at that time, a restaurant 
wasn't necessarily about the brand of the chef. It was about the overall concept of the restaurant. And it was a little bit different. I mean, food obviously played a really, really important role. But as Fork progressed into the 21st century, we had to start taking into consideration that we needed to have a chef with a brand. And so I had had several chefs who were very talented, but may not have had that brand. And so Terrence Fury was really the first person that we brought in who had a brand and that people recognized his name as, you know, a talented chef from New York City who moved to Philadelphia. And he really helped elevate Fork to a new level, which then enabled us to be able to attract Eli. At the time when Eli joined us, the restaurant was already 15 years old. And I just was blown away by Eli's talent and really wanted him to come help me reinvent this restaurant. And after 15 years, it's a little bit tired and it needs a boost of energy and his fresh ideas. How do you think that you were able to see? You recognized that it was tired and you weren't afraid of reinvention. What made you think that that was not the case, that reinventing with someone like Eli would bring you more opportunities rather than sort of lose what you had? You know, one thing I do, whether people like it or not, is that I eat at Fork a lot. I'm there a lot. I really want to understand the experience from a guest perspective. And I want to make sure the experience people are getting is consistent from the service to the food. And I would sit outside at the end of the night and listen to people walk by and people would say, oh, that's a really nice restaurant. But they would never come in. And I was just like, why aren't they coming in? This is a really curious thing for me is not that business was down, but the first time I started thinking about it was 2008. What am I going to do to really make Fork be someplace that people want to be? And and we had a very loyal following of people. So by the time Eli came, the dining scene in Philadelphia had changed so much. And I feel that you do have to adapt to your environment and just knowing how competitive it was, I knew that I had to inject some life or something new to make people see that Fork was still very relevant and fresh and new. And that was something that when I started talking to Eli, was really attractive to him. I mean, Eli is so talented. So you hired Eli Culp. He was um, a food wine investment chef. And, you know, it feels like the restaurants were expanding. And then Eli was in a terrible accident with Amtrak number 188. Can you tell me about that? And I think he had just left your office and he wasn't on the manifest for the train, right? Right. This was something that I feel that I can recall every minute of the experience from my perspective. I can't imagine what his experience must have been like. But I remember us talking and I said, hey, do you want to grab a drink before you leave tonight? Because it wasn't a busy night. And he was just like, no, I really want to get home to my family and I want to get going. And I was just like, all right, well, I'll walk you out. We had signed the lease at Hudson Street. We were in the midst of designing the restaurant. And I said, maybe we need to start thinking about a chef de cuisine for Hudson, because how are we going to split our time up? And, you know, we were having a conversation that was really exciting about, you know, our growth. And we walked outside, he got in a cab, and I proceeded to 
start eating dinner. And I was sitting outside of High Street with a friend. And suddenly I got a call from Eli's wife at the time. And she said there was a horrible Amtrak accident and Eli's on the train. And I really couldn't believe it because I was just like, there's no way he could not have gotten on it. She's like, I'm positive. He's not answering his phone. And from that point forward, all our lives were altered, especially his. And it's been a long journey. I can only imagine. I mean, we got to see each other a, a bunch during that that time. The, the shock of it, and I got to see Eli. It was so hard for him, which he's very open about. And he's now doing a podcast. The essence is about resilience. But I've always wanted to know from your position as the restaurateur, what went through your mind in terms of how do I move forward with this person who like, just has a very long healing road ahead of them? You know, you have a business to run, you have a partnership, but how did you even begin to think that through? I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> and I was just like, well, Eli's going to recover. I, I really believe that Eli was going to, to, no matter what, whether he walked or didn't walk, that Eli was going to be somebody who would be a leader in whatever he does. And so I really believed in Eli. And I refused to accept that he couldn't be part of the new restaurant. And we would talk about how there's technology that could enable him to be able to see behind the line. And he really wanted to be part of it. Just to be clear for people who are listening. So the restaurant you were about to open was in New York. And Eli, as a result of the accident, when he got out of the hospital, he was in a wheelchair. So he wasn't able to stand. He wasn't able to work the line just to give everybody some context there. Right. And he is quadriplegic and he was being treated in Atlanta at Shepherd Institute. And that was all happening while the restaurant was being constructed and built. And I felt that the restaurant would be something that could create the impetus to want to get better because I personally can't imagine what it must feel like to be not yourself and having to face this reality that you might not be able to do what you were doing before. I mean, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't a restaurateur. It would be very, very difficult. And I felt that opening would enable him to just keep pushing forward. From that perspective, it's really putting yourself in his position, like offering him this set in sort of a grand way, like a reason to live, right? I mean, he had lived to be a, for his family, but also to be a chef. But is it something that you thought about from the business side? Yes, but stupid or not, <laughs> I tried to keep it going as long as I possibly could because I didn't feel that I could abandon Eli at that time in terms of his pay because he didn't have any other source of income and the settlement had not happened. I just felt that I had to help support him. And he was always interested in the restaurant and I, I just wanted to keep it going as long as I possibly could. I, I loved always our partnership and I didn't want it to end. Just like any any marriage or partnership, it's difficult. And these were really difficult conversations to have. And sometimes they were great and sometimes they were awful. And we are continuing to work together. And I think that Eli has really 
found a niche for himself with his podcast and he's very interested in leadership and supporting young people and he's also working on his own real estate project. So we work together whenever we possibly can and and on some projects we're not involved together on everything. So, you know, our relationship has definitely evolved. He's somebody I have immense respect for, but sometimes we don't see eye to eye and that can become really difficult. How do you resolve those differences? I imagine that that can be really tough. Well, I'm a, I'm also the type of person who I forget everything that happens. So I'm pretty forgiving. So, I, you know, like we could be having a massive argument and I can go back to the way I was the day before pretty quickly. But sometimes being apart and doing our own thing for a while helps bring you closer together. So I've learned a lot about myself through Eli, and I'm sure he's learned things from me as well. What have you learned about yourself from the conversations with Eli? Well, I think that I could definitely be more empathetic from a management perspective. I can definitely be more empathetic to others. Sometimes I can be very direct and especially right now, being able to listen is really important. And I haven't always been the best listener. So that's something that I really have been focusing on and trying to improve. Did you ever feel with going through the growth and change with Eli together that you were sacrificing your own taking care of yourself in order to take care of him? Well, I wouldn't say that I was taking care of him, but, you know, sometimes, yes. I mean, honestly, there were times when I felt resentful as well because I wanted to help him, but maybe he didn't want my help or maybe he didn't see it as help or maybe he felt that it was entitled to him. Any of those feelings people have, and it's not anybody's fault, but people have them. And we all both work really hard to repair and move on from that time period. One of the things I've heard you say is his resilience and the way that he dealt with the situation has you know changed you indelibly. I'm wondering like what about the resilience were you able to sort of absorb or take on as a lesson as well? Throughout our relationship, I've always tried to be as supportive as possible. And one thing that I always complain to everybody about is Sometimes I say, I just want to vent. And other people do want to vent too. And it's not my job to necessarily fix it. So maybe there were times when he might be saying something to me that I felt like I had to do something, but that wasn't really what was desired. I'm sure everybody can relate to that, but that's something that I feel I really have been trying to listen a lot more attentively and like read between the lines, not take everything so literally, which I'm from an Asian family and everybody in our family says what they mean and there's no gray. So that's been something that I had to learn. That's funny because I think that I grew up in the opposite kind of family where I'm not sure anyone ever said exactly what they meant. That's something to learn to get around as well. But with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from the extraordinary Ellen Yin. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. 
Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total food service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at totalfood.com. Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you. It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that and then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community. So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I, I consider myself a city kid. You know, when we initially got a horse, you know, I have that New York City mindset, a horse. I'm thinking thoroughbred horse, aqueduct racetrack, <laughs> Belmont racetrack, those type of things, you know, and, and, and slowly but surely I'm starting to understand a lot more. I do remember early on, like, you know, the first month or two of dating, how we would daydream about starting a farm together. And it's kind of like, hold on, let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that, you know? <laughs> so what got me into chickens? Um, I always joke and say that a chicken saved my life. Um, and it very much so did. I'm interested in black liberation that's ecological and that's not contingent upon... <sighs> these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want and that I seek for our for our people and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability. And so for us, it's also this idea of connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically, sustainably farm in our current economy and time? Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I have Ellen Yin as my guest. Ellen, you've got a restaurant in New York and a couple of restaurants in Philly, and I'm just wondering, you have such a unique perspective during COVID. What is your thought about the restaurants in Philly right now? Well, number one is that each one is individual. So nobody in New York wants to hear about Philadelphia and nobody in Philadelphia wants to hear about New York, to be quite honest. And I think that High Street on Hudson is tough. I mean, it's a small little neighborhood restaurant. 
It really is a restaurant that should be owner-operated. And unfortunately, we both live in Philadelphia now, and we're not here. So it's really, it has been a challenging business proposition for us, especially with the pandemic. We have been working with a partner who is a neighborhood person after the restaurant closed in March. I didn't really know what was happening in New York. And honestly, you could not go to New York City without quarantining for 14 days. And I didn't really have the time to be able to do that. <laughs> so we, we quite honestly felt that maybe High Street on Hudson was was done. And it's sad because I just love this little corner. I'm sitting here right now and I just love it. It's cobblestone street and a park across the street and a quaint neighborhood and great neighbors and amazing staff. I mean, we've had a, a great run of a team here that many of them started shortly after we opened, but it's it's been an amazing challenge. And so when we thought that we wanted to possibly give up on it. We talked to our landlord and we, we we really felt he had been supporting us so much since Eli's accident, in fact, that we didn't feel that it was right for us to leave at this time. And so we are giving it another go. And we are working with James Shields from Brunetti Pizza across the way because we feel like he really understands what this neighborhood is about. And we need to be a neighborhood restaurant right now. We need to be a respite for people in New York City who live in the immediate five or six blocks, and we want to be here. So we're reinventing High Street. Right now, it's a pop-up seafood and cocktail bar. In Philadelphia, you decided to move the restaurant. Can you tell me about how that came to pass and how you feel about it? Right. So Fork Restaurant expanded to the building next door to it in 2004. And so we've been operating here and happy and content until 2020 when COVID hit. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to make a deal with my landlord after COVID. And I had the opportunity because I had negotiated a lease term when they increased my rent by 50% in October. So I was able to terminate the lease effective October 1st. So we've been spending the past month moving out. It's been very sad because we've spent hundreds and thousands of dollars improving the space. And when I say improving the space, it was really a derelict space. It was an old dollar store, um, it had this great sign from probably like the 60s that said nothing over a dollar and it was painted in red and blue, if you can imagine it. The building itself is a two-story brick building, which probably replaced whatever was historic here because we're in the old part of Philadelphia where Philadelphia all started right by the river. And this building is definitely not from that generation, but it wasn't exactly the prettiest building, but we turned it into something that I thought was really nice. And um, when we decided that we had to terminate the lease, it was primarily for financial reasons, but sometimes when things are really down, it leads opportunity. So we are really excited to be opening this week. It has not been an easy road and it just shows how difficult it is for small businesses to survive. I mean, even a restaurant with such a long history like High Street and its predecessor suffering through these very uncertain times 
shows how vulnerable small businesses can be. I consider myself really lucky because I had these opportunities that led me to be able to quickly transition to another location, whereas other people might not have done that. And quite honestly, most people don't think about what it's like to close their business. We mostly think about what it's like to open our business and then what it's like in case we fail, how we are going to exit. But we don't really think about how we would have to make that type of transition and end a lease. I've never done that before. Is there something that you that you learned that like you will never forget from this experience, aside from how hard it is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, most commercial leases tend to be very pro-landlord. And in this particular case, and in almost all my leases, there is a clause that says that you have to return the demise premise to its original condition. Well, I never expected anybody to want to return the space to its original condition because the floor was not straight. I mean, in the old days, you had to you had to ramp up to the back of the building so that you could push things upwards. And that was the condition of the building. At the, at the beginning of the building, it was really low. And at the end of the building, it was much higher. So to put in a tile floor, we had to level the building, hire a structural engineer. We put a lot of effort into making the floor level. Not only that, it was a vacant space. So we didn't have the benefit of using somebody else's leasehold improvements, which during this type of environment, anybody who's opening a restaurant, I highly recommend looking at places that already exist so that you don't have to put the money in. When someone's opening a restaurant now, like, is there a particular situation that makes it possible to open and succeed where so many restaurants right now are struggling and closing? I think that whenever something like this happens, there's going to be opportunities in the future. And not that I want to take advantage of somebody else's failures or closing or anything like that, but the reality is is that over the past couple of years, I do think that there has been a large number of restaurants opening in, in most urban environments, New York, Philadelphia, they've been saturated with, with openings. And that's been wonderful for all of us who love to go out to eat, but it's also really difficult from the perspective of hiring and also from a lease negotiation perspective. So now that all this has happened, things may be slightly different. And I do think that landlords are going to be more open to figuring out how they can make it work. So that might be through either being flexible with their lease terms. For example, in my current situation, I was able to negotiate a percentage of sales as part of the rent so that in the event that we're not busy, that we don't have to pay as much. And if we succeed, then that location helped us become a success and that landlord should be able to participate in the success as well. So what gives you hope in this industry? It, it feels like a moment where there's both great pain, but also tremendous opportunity. And I feel like you do fall on the, you've seen the opportunities ahead. What makes you feel optimistic? Well, it can't get any worse. <laughs> it can't get any worse. So it can only get better. And as, as I know from being in the business, although I can't believe it's been 23 years that Fork has been open, I've seen ups and downs in the market, 9-11, the 2008 recession, different things happen that make things go up and down. And so I feel confident. I know that things are going to get better. The question is when. And how do you set yourself up for that? And what gives me great hope is seeing so many creative people in our industry 